You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. I am your guest host this week, Paul Doroshenko, because Kyla Lee is unavailable. It has been over a year now that Driving Law has been recorded every week. Kyla has had some wonderful guests on the show. She's had David Eby and Dana Larson, uh, Mike Farnworth. I mean, it's hard to um, sort of... (laughs) believe the quality of the guests that she's had on the podcast. It's been a just a great podcast and we were thinking about it and thinking about all of the wonderful interviews and there's you know obviously some best uh, clips and uh, and thoughtful things that came out of those and so it seemed appropriate for us to have a little bit of a retrospective go back over the last year and look at some of the exciting interviews that she's had. So that's what we're going to do today, and we're going to start with Dana Larson. Let's get started with that. And welcome back to the podcast, cannabis activist extraordinaire Dana Larson, who is taking time out of his very busy day preparing for the 420 event in Vancouver to talk to us about driving-related legal issues surrounding 420. Welcome, Dana. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Oh, yeah, anytime. Um, so a couple months ago, um, or maybe I guess last year around 420, there were a lot of studies uh, that were cited by media surrounding driving and 420, and they talked about an increase in impaired driving around the event, and you looked into that. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I really, I mean, when it first happened, I get these calls from the media. I normally haven't even seen the the story yet, you know, and then I have to comment on it. So I try to point out some of the flaws that I could maybe think of in that moment or some angles that haven't been taken. Uh, but then this, this new study came out and looked at the original study, and it just is so clearly debunks all the claims in the original study about uh, uh, all the, the how deadly it is to drive on 420 and and really scaremongering uh, headlines about dramatic spikes and right after 420 and it's just so clear that it's all nonsense and uh, yeah we we should get into that and explain you know how how and why that is okay so well tell me first what what was the basis of the original study's claim that there was this spike in in deadly impaired driving around 420. Well, they, they looked at uh, uh, statistics for car accidents, uh, or it's actually for fatal uh, collisions or deaths, uh, on April 20th after 4.20 p.m., and then they compared that with the week before and the week after, so the day, uh, uh, April uh, 13th and April 27th. And they looked at those three dates uh, after 4.20, and they concluded that there was a slightly higher rate of accidents or fatal collisions uh, on April 20th than there was out of those other two dates. And they use that to extrapolate and come up with some very scary uh, numbers across the board. And was that? Did they look at just one year, or did they look at multiple years? They looked at multiple years. I think they started uh, in the '90s or around the time that the 420 sort of cultural phenomenon was starting to happen. But there was no real controlling for, you know, if if a certain area was having a 420 event or not, or if the 420 culture was sort of stronger in one area. And so, you know, one of the things that, that came out of the study was that uh, states 
like California and Colorado that have big 420 events and uh, and really have a big sort of cannabis 420 culture. They actually had a slightly lower rate of accidents on that day, uh, but that some other states that uh, like Hawaii and Maine, I think, that don't really have any 420 events, they had a slightly higher rate of accidents. So there was already some suspicions in the original study that the data wasn't really going to withstand uh, serious scrutiny. Okay, and so then what did uh, this most recent study look at, and how does it debunk the original data? Well, instead of just having three data points uh, of the April 13th, 20th, and 27th, they looked at the whole month of April. And uh, and it's really a very simple uh, change of perspective, but when you do that, you see that April 20th falls uh, roughly in the middle of the month when it comes to uh, how many uh, fatal collisions they are. And oddly, April uh, 13th and 27th seem to fall uh, near the, the lower end for whatever reason. But really, it just seems to be natural variation. If anything, if you look at the chart, the day that has the highest is April 1st. And it seems a bit higher than all of the rest in, in kind of a substantial way. So maybe there's something there around April Fool's jokes or, <laughs> or something causing accidents. I don't know. But, I mean, in any month, you're going to see a natural variation over the month just for your randomness sake. But so when you look at it over the whole month, you just very clearly see that, um, that, that 420 does not stand out at all. And if you zoom out and you look at it like month by month over the course of a year, does does April have a higher accident rate overall than in, than all other months? They didn't. I don't think they actually did that. They just compared it through to April, uh, like through other days in April and stuff, right? I mean, so it's possible there might be some seasonal. No, actually, they did. I'm sorry, they did actually pull that out overall, uh, and they did look at all the days out of the year. You're right, and they and they did find that it was. Um, uh, uh, around uh, uh, July 4th and around Christmas, uh, there was a spike in accidents. And, uh, you know, that's likely caused by alcohol. Also, just caused <laughs> by more people being on the road as well, right? I mean, mm-hmm. more drivers driving just means more collisions, even if everything else is the same. And certainly those are busy times. So, you know, uh, uh, but the, the, the results show that, you know, April isn't, isn't a special month and 420 uh, doesn't stand out in the month of April and certainly doesn't stand out over the year uh, as, a, as a big day for these kind of collisions. Now, is there any reason that you can think of for like the motivation behind the original study sort of looking at this in a way that is obviously flawed, the way you've explained it, having three data points is not a good way to analyze data. Um, were the authors of the study part of an anti-cannabis lobby or, or is there any motivation behind this that you could discern? Well, you know, I'm not sure. I, I, I looked at their other studies they've done, and I, I wouldn't necessarily... I mean, they seem to be pretty readily accepting of this information. I mean, I think that probably with researchers at all types, there's a, a tendency towards confirmation bias, and sometimes you find what you're looking for. You know, I mean, I, I would be very surprised if they had picked other days and then decided to compare just those two days because it fit their perception. That would be, uh, you know, malpractice as, as a researcher. I think it just happened to be that April 20th was slightly higher than the 13th and the 27th, and seeing the confirmation of what they were hoping to find, they were like, okay, we've proved it, no need to look further. Uh, mm-hmm. But when you did look further, you see that, that the initial analysis is just lacking in, in, in so much depth. 
Okay. Now you're about six weeks away from the annual 420 event in Vancouver, and you've been doing, as you do every year, all of this organization leading up to it. What steps do you take um, at the event and, and before the event to deal with the issue of in, you know, potential impaired driving? Well, I will say, first of all, there's a lot of police officers there uh, (laughs) at the event, uh, and they're very friendly and supportive and not a hostile or anything, but certainly, you know, if they see anything or anybody obviously impaired trying to do anything, they they can and will and do give people the test or a hand-eye coordination test, and I've seen people have the test and then be released because they they passed it and they were fine. Uh, but uh, that that's up to them to deal with that. Uh, certainly when we sell, it's edibles is really kind of the issue, you know, oh, yeah. more than smoking. And uh, and, and we, we, we encourage all the booths that, that are selling edibles to uh, give out warnings, and we provide them on, on our written materials and on our signage and on our, our event guide and that kind of thing with edibles. You know, the, the common sense advice, take it easy, uh, start small, you know, don't, don't overdo it. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got all day. And, uh, and certainly, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people actually drive to the event as well uh, because there's not really a parking area where you can come. You know, the ones that park in that are mostly the exhibitors who park nearby to be able to get their stuff in and out. But really, it's public transit and people on foot, I would say, is the vast majority of those who attend or who are from the local area. But otherwise, you know, we like any other event that, that serves alcohol, we encourage people to be responsible. We try to keep an eye out, and uh, there are police there to enforce those laws, and um, that's how it goes. Thank you again to Attorney General David Eby for joining us on the podcast this week. Uh, Minister, uh, Attorney General David Eby, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I invited you on because although your job deals with so many different things, sort of driving has been driving a lot of the work that you've been doing since you took over the position. Um, I imagine you'd probably agree with that. Yeah, I mean, really nothing focuses the mind quite so much as sitting around a cabinet table and having all your colleagues stare at you as you try to explain by why $1.3 billion in public money has evaporated from the budget and can't be spent on public programs, schools, hospitals, and so on. Uh, so, yes, driving the implications of the increasing accident rate in British Columbia and the loss at ICBC has been front and center. Uh, it's definitely the issue that keeps me up at night. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people have been really critical of you for the um, sort of position you've taken about lawyers. And you published an op-ed, I guess it was last week, um, sort of responding to that. And I, I wanted to thank you because I thought it was a very balanced um, a very balanced piece. And I, I think you presented a fair opinion. Is it hard for you, like being a lawyer yourself, Um and sort of being perceived by a lot of lawyers as as doing something bad for the legal community? Sure. Well, you know, I've always felt myself personally aligned with the personal injury bar. Uh, You know, I grew up in a house. My dad was a personal injury lawyer, so I learned early on about the evils of insurance companies and uh, how personal injury lawyers stand up for the little guy. And uh, and in my own practice, uh, and especially in relation to police accountability, I filed the personal injury actions and saw it very much as being a way for people to obtain justice outside of the formal complaints process, which was very broken. And so, um, 
you know, it's, it's challenging for me to say, look, there's a problem with personal injury law when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, car accidents. We need to fix it. And also to be, uh, frankly, mildly critical of uh, the conduct of some lawyers uh, in the province and, and the way that they're advertising and, uh, and, and also knowing the important roles that they play. So it, it is a difficult position to be in, and it's a nuanced position, and politics doesn't lend itself to nuance very well. No, it, does, it doesn't seem that way. And we don't, like, we don't in BC want to go down that road where we have, you know, I'm sure you've been paying attention to the diamond and diamond scandal over with the Ontario Law Society and their advertising and the bait and switch approach that they're allegedly taking with their clients. And I think we were sort of really quickly headed for a crash course to that. Um, and so it, it may be good in some respects to sort of rein in the um, profitability, I guess, of dealing with personal injury cases to try and prevent people being taken advantage of. So I think a lot of people aren't really sort of willing to discuss that uh, angle about what it is you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think from from my perspective, just so you know, your listeners are clear about what we're really going after here. It's it's making the um, the system proportionate and the and the way we resolve disputes proportionate to the matter that is being disputed. So when you have a claim that's under fifty thousand dollars, you don't need BC Supreme Court, uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands of dollars of expert reports on both sides. Like the the data is right now that for a hundred thousand dollar claim in BC Supreme Court, we're at somewhere usually around forty to fifty thousand dollars. In disbursements, that doesn't count the cost of operating the court itself, uh, or of uh, of ICBC's operations. Just straight up disbursements. And wow. so, um, you know, when you're talking about a fifty percent ratio of the cost of of resolving the dispute, it's just not it, it's just not working. And so, how do we fix these things? And and you know, it's it's very challenging. Yeah, it's a moving. Uh, it's a it's a flying plane. So you have to make the changes while it's in the air. Um, and, uh, and there are a lot of people who are dependent on the system as it stands and, uh, they're not easy decisions, you know, to, to cut ICBC's advertising budget by 50%, uh, impacts, uh, you know, people who work in the advertising, uh, agency that, that saw that cut. Uh, and when you, uh, crack down on fraud in relation to auto body repair, it means more time spent by auto body repair shops that are already working on thin margins dealing with. Uh, oversight that maybe they don't need. Maybe it's someone else down the road that's causing the problem. And it's the same with lawyers. And, and it is a challenging thing, but we have to do it. Well, it's, it's actually interesting that you mentioned, you know, audio body repair shops and marketing firms, because I think, you know, lawyers, we are very good at being outspoken. And we're a very vocal community because we have skill sets that sort of lend ourselves to public speaking without much difficulty. And so a lot of people are hearing the complaints from the lawyers. And, you know, even I have a hard time being sympathetic to lawyers because, you know, we have a very privileged position um, in society. But I, I think there are a lot more people people that are affected by what's happened at ICBC um, and the changes that need to be made to fix it. Um, and it's nice to hear that somebody's talking about those. I wanted to ask yeah. you, oh, go ahead. No, yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I think that um, there are a bunch of different categories. And I, one of the things that I've tried to be clear about from early on is uh, it's uh, it's going to be unhappy for a lot of people that are dependent on ICBC for their business in one way or another. Um, because the bottom line is the premiums they take in don't cover their operating expenses. And so 
um, anyone who receives those operating expenses, whether through you know reimbursement of disbursements or through um, through various other mechanisms of ICBC paying out, um, they've been bracing for uh, various challenging conversations that we have to have. Yeah. What about the ICBC defense bar? Because, I mean, we hear a lot from the personal injury bar and the lawyers um, who who take that, you know, their income from a percentage of what they collect for the clients. But there's plenty of lawyers out there who never work for plaintiffs, who do just defense work. Are any of the changes that you're making expected to impact that side of the bar? Um, so the, the changes that we're uh, talking about making are going to affect about 80%. Of the uh, litigated, currently litigated files um, uh, that that go to BC Supreme Court uh, and uh, and don't see uh, trial, <laughs> the vast majority of them, about ninety plus percent, don't see any trial at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, there is less work as well for uh, defense firms. Um, many of these claims will be resolved through the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Uh, with ICBC representing itself instead of hiring a lawyer to represent it as a, as a cost-saving measure. And so is, um, and is the intention then for ICBC to represent itself through its adjusters? or That's correct. Okay, so it's not going to be lawyer versus little guy. Uh, no, there will still be, uh, uh, you know, the adjusters will probably have questions that they might need legal advice on, but uh, the intention is that ICBC will largely represent itself. Uh, and uh, and that uh, individuals can hire a lawyer or they can represent themselves. Um, the complaint about it has been, well, you're going to have these adjusters who, who do these all the time and then people who maybe are less experienced. Um, but the uh, Civil Resolution Tribunal is set up uh, intended uh, uh, to be in situations of uh, power imbalance, a strata corporation versus a person owns a unit, uh, you know, a, a large nonprofit versus, uh, versus a single member, uh, this is not different in that kind of situation, and they have ways of dealing with that through the role of the adjudicator, uh, evening things out between the two. Yeah, and um, I know, like I, I, I know as a lawyer and who deals with tribunals often, as as most of my practice does, um, th- this isn't the case. But a lot of people have concerns with the civil resolution tribunal being a government tribunal, um, representing sort of or potentially representing the government interest in the sense that, you know, ICBC's got to save money to to fix this debt. What do you say to people who are concerned about that? I understand the concern. I've had a lot of conversations with people about um, the role of tribunals. And, and we have tribunals that decide uh, matters related to people's human rights uh, in the province. You know, this is... Uh, uh, about as serious as it gets, and we have a qualified tribunal that deals with these things. Uh, we are hiring uh, and have hired a significant number of uh, personal injury lawyers from the plaintiff side to act as adjudicators uh, uh, in this. And I say we, it's actually the tribunal itself that goes through a merit-based hiring process independent of government. Um, and so, you know, I, I do understand um, uh, that this is not uh, judicial independence in the sense of uh, of a judge who's earning you know three hundred thousand dollars a year and has the pension and uh, and all of the uh, the hallmarks of uh, of that type of independence. It's it's a tribunal. It's someone uh, from the community who is paid a good wage but isn't paid those judicial salaries mm-hmm. uh, and is appointed for a fixed period of time and uh, is independent of government. Uh, we don't. Uh, I don't uh, review their decisions and decide whether or not those should go ahead. So you know, they're, <laughs> a, yeah, that's right. It's a spectrum, right? It's a spectrum of independence, and it's definitely uh, not on the full judicial end of the spectrum. But it is a long way from a tribunal that's under government control. 
thank you everyone for joining us on the Driving Law podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest. It's Camille Labchuk. Uh, she is the executive director of Animal Justice. Uh, it's a not-for-profit organization that deals with animals and the law, and it's the only organization in Canada that deals specifically with animal law. So welcome, Camille. Hi, Kyla. Thanks for having me. Oh, anytime. Um, So you and I were talking before we started recording a little bit about an issue that's been uh, a a big deal when it comes to animals and cars lately this summer. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, I think, when they think of um, animals and and cars this summer is just how freaking hot it has been. Um, You know, you can't even go outside and last too long without wanting to go back to an air conditioner. And uh, people, as usual, when summertime rolls around, keep witnessing um, hot dogs left in vehicles, which is obviously a problem. Uh, The temperature inside a a car can rise extremely quickly. Um, You know, I think that if it's about 26 degrees outside within 10 minutes, it could be 37 degrees inside a vehicle. It could be 42 degrees in 20 minutes and up to 46 degrees within a half an hour. So sometimes people think, oh, it's fine. I'll just leave an animal in the car for, for a quick minute. And it ends up um, being a, a huge problem for them because that can obviously uh, kill an animal pretty quickly. So, you know, I think the, the, the hot weather is, is a good reminder that we always need to make sure to keep animals out of vehicles. So what could you face? Like, would a person face any charges if they left an animal in a hot car? Yeah, they could. Uh, they definitely could. So in federally, it's a criminal offense to cause unnecessary suffering to an animal. And at the provincial level, the, the laws are all different in every province. But generally, it's an offense to cause distress to an animal. And that can include things like it, the animal left being left at an inappropriate temperature, like inside a vehicle. So people uh, can be charged, and they certainly are charged, I think, both criminally and provincially, for leaving dogs and other animals in hot vehicles. Okay. And, like, you deal with a lot of animal justice stuff. What type of sentences do you see for people who who leave their animals in their vehicles? Well, I'm not sure that I could tell you off the top of my head sentences that I've seen recently because the cases uh, are you know, less common as far as as far as these things go. But generally, the trend when it comes to criminal charges is for there to be jail time imposed. Um, about a decade ago, the government increased the sentences that were available for animal cruelty offenses prosecuted under the criminal code. And uh, previously, there was a six-month maximum sentence that was available. They increased that up to two years um, on indictment. And that uh, trend has definitely been borne out in the sentences we're seeing. So criminal code offenses do tend to carry jail sentences at this point. And provincially, if somebody's charged under a provincial statute, of course, that's more regulatory in nature. Um, you know, in the same way that we would, you know, think of drinking and driving as a criminal offense and some, um, you know, license suspension prohibitions and some other provincial offenses associated with with the same activities at the uh, provincial level that are more regulatory. We also have these animal laws that are more regulatory in nature. So a provincial charge for leaving a dog in a car uh, would be a, a charge of causing distress. And that would probably be more like a fine or probation, but jail is still available. Wow. Okay. And what about like those big transportation trucks, like trucks taking um, animals to slaughter? There was a, a relatively famous case a couple of years ago of a woman who was charged after she 
was caught um, giving pigs water who were in a hot truck on their way to the slaughterhouse. Are there any legal implications there? Yeah, that is such an interesting issue to me. And, you know, what we're seeing now is there's, um, and I see this because I work pretty closely with a lot of people who consider themselves animal advocates. And one thing that they do is often go outside slaughterhouses. They see the transport trucks bringing animals into those slaughterhouses that are just full of uh, chickens or more often it's pigs and cows that you can really get up close and see. And, you know, if we think that dogs and and cars have it bad, it's actually far worse for animals like pigs and cows and chickens who are being transported to slaughter. So these activists are able to document the conditions inside those vehicles. The the vehicles are actually open-sided, these slaughter transport trucks. So the animals inside are completely exposed to the weather, so the humidity and the heat. And conversely, of course, in the winter, they're exposed to uh, the open-sided vehicles uh, and, you know, any snow or freezing temperatures that might be there as well. And under Canadian law, Kyla, it's actually shocking. There's no minimum temperature or maximum temperature that you can't transport animals beyond. So basically, any weather condition uh, goes. And what we're seeing is pigs panting, um, pigs overcrowded and climbing on top of each other in these hot vehicles. Uh, the, the people who do the filming are able to uh, stick a thermometer inside the truck so they can get a pretty accurate gauge of how hot they actually are. And they're seeing temperatures over 40 degrees in some cases. So what we've been trying to do through animal justice is we file enforcement complaints with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency which enforces the transportation regulations for animals being shipped to slaughter. And, uh, you know, in my view, the, the CFIA doesn't do a very vigorous job of enforcing those regulations, so we're trying to encourage that, and they have undertaken a few investigations. Are there are there plans, like, is your organization engaged in any plans to try and change the state of the law around this so that there are regulations about the conditions in which animals can be transported? We are actually actively engaged. It's actually a pretty big campaign for us. So, you know, background to this, it's it's actually shocking, but Canada does have animal transport laws, but they were created in 1978. (laughs) So they're they're now 40 years old, and obviously a lot has changed in 40 years, uh, but not the way we're supposed to transport animals. So the regulations fail on a number of fronts. Obviously, I just spoke about the temperature issues and the fact that animals can be transported in these open-sided vehicles in any weather conditions. But another issue is the length of time that they can be transported. So for uh, for many animals, it's several days at a time. It could be 36 to 52 hours. They can be transported in these vehicles on highways without any access to food, without access to water, and without any ability to rest or, or lie down and get a break from the transport. Do, they so when you look at, Do you see a lot of animals dying in these transports? Yeah, you know what? Official uh, government statistics show that about 2 million animals die uh, on transport and arrive dead or dying at slaughterhouses. I suspect the number is actually much higher than that, but, but they may um, use different me- metrics to make it appear lower. Right. Wow. So what yeah. what steps are you guys I mean without revealing your whole strategy what steps are you guys taking to try and try and change this Oh, well, there's there's nothing secret about it at all. We're <laughs> being very public about it. So um, a couple of years ago, actually for quite some time, the government has said it would change the transport legs. So it's consulted on that for a few years. In December of 2016, it released a new proposal to change the regulations. But unfortunately, it was barely better than what we have now. Uh, they reduced some of the transport times for different animals by a small amount. 
But uh, we also filed a bunch of access to information requests uh, through through various animal groups. And what came back was some pretty disturbing evidence that any time the industry objected to what the government really wanted to do and what the science said the government should do, the industry concerns won out. So chickens uh, are a really good example. Uh, the science says that chickens show signs of poor welfare after being transported for 12 hours and that that should be the maximum. And the industry came back and said, yeah, that's going to interfere with our profits, so we're going to need you to change that to 24 hours. And unfortunately, the government did make that change. So oh those regulations, yeah, it's, it's really it's really shocking. But how is that even so, consistent with the criminal law that says that you can't, or, or I guess the regulatory law at the provincial level that says you can't allow an animal to be in distress? You know, it's a, it's a really it's a really good issue, and I'm glad you're asking it because that is the right question. Uh, we think that in a lot of cases, there's definitely violations of provincial and federal regulatory transport laws when when animals animals are being transported in this way. Um, it's also a, um, an offense to cause an animal undue suffering while transporting them under those federal transport regs. But then the question, Kyla, always becomes: What does that word "undo" mean? It implies that there is a certain amount of distress it's acceptable right so that industry can continue to you know use its business model and, and make profits the way it does so yeah when when there's vague language like that in my view the animals always lose yeah and and i mean we've uh, you probably haven't listened to the previous episodes of this podcast because it's outside your your area but uh we've had a lot of of guests come on here and say that at the end of the day in anything for government it comes down to who has the money and whose bottom line is going to be affected i couldn't agree more i uh, my view of law is that it's a power relationship <laughs> and essentially uh you know those with more power relative to those with less power are the ones who are essentially in control at this point and to make things change and to get better laws in place we just need to shift that power dynamic so i think that's why it's really important that we are seeing so much activism around these transport regulations around the conditions that animals are being transported in because the more people know about this and understand and i'm thankful to you for having me on so i can talk about this to your listeners I think the more people understand about this, the more they're motivated to contact the government and tell them that's not good enough anymore. Yeah, and can they like can they donate to your organization or or do something to help your the work that you're doing? Yeah, they can. So animaljustice.ca/donate. You can check out what we're all about and make a contribution there if you like. And uh, we, you know, really appreciate the support. I think that for a long time people just didn't understand what was happening to animals in this country, and the tragic reality is is that Canada has some of the worst animal protection laws in the Western world when it comes to transport or federal animal cruelty laws like I could go on and people are starting to wake up to that and that can only be a good thing Thank you to Minister Mike Farnworth for joining us on the Driving Law podcast to talk about a lot of different initiatives that uh, he has sort of been responsible for um, when it comes to cannabis and what the future holds for impaired driving enforcement uh, in British Columbia. So thank you, Minister Farnworth, for joining us. My pleasure. Um, I guess the first thing in the I think the majority of people who listen to the podcast really want to know about is how is 
cannabis and cannabis legalization going to affect provincial driving laws? What, what have you got in the works? Well, I guess there's, there's two key areas where I think uh, change, uh, there's significant change. Uh, one clearly is the, the zero uh, tolerance limit for, uh, for THC. Uh, and in fact, other drugs for uh, in the graduated licensing program. So that's for for new drivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, I think that's uh, an important uh, an important change. And the other one is around the introduction of a 90-day uh, roadside prohibition. Uh, so those amendments were made to the Motor Vehicle Act in this spring, and uh, they have the ability. So instead of just the 24-hour roadside suspension, you can there will be a 90-day. Uh, roadside suspension, which is a, a much more uh, serious and stronger penalty than the 24-hour driving prohibition. So those are probably two of the uh, the biggest uh, changes uh, to come about in terms of driving and, and cannabis with the passage of the, and legalization of cannabis uh, in Canada and BC. When do you think we'll see the implementation of the 90-day uh, ban for drugs? There's still uh, work being done on that, and right now um, I'd be looking at uh, later in the spring of 2019 okay. uh, in terms of all the work that's still going on around that and, and the fact that there's still issues with uh, some of the technology and things like that. Absolutely. And those 90-day prohibitions for drugs are going to be based either on the results of a blood test or on the results of a drug recognition evaluation. Is that that's the that's the the general that's that's the general approach that that, that we'll be taking as uh, as government. Yeah. Okay. So is one of the reasons you're holding off then because they're still working on fully staffing the labs and fully training the officers? There's still a lot, let's just say there's still a lot of work that has to be done, uh, and as as much as possible, uh, you know, we want to mirror the uh, the criminal code mm-hmm. of of Canada as well. Is it your expectation that these 90 days um, are going to sort of, I don't want to say replace, but um, serve as an alternative to a criminal prosecution in the same way that IRPs do, or are they? Uh, I certainly, I, I certainly think that uh, that's one of the uh, one of the approaches we want to take. I mean, the whole idea, or the, I mean, one of the reasons for these changes, and I think, is that we've modeled uh, much in terms of the IRP program, uh, and that was brought in in 2010. And that was remarkably uh, successful in terms of reducing the number of alcohol-related deaths in this province. I think it's cut it down by more than 40%. Um, I think we were averaging around 113, 114 a year prior to the introduction of the changes, and now it's down to about uh, 54, 55, something like that. Uh, And so that's, you know, I, I think people get the message. And I think that's one of the things we'd like to see happen uh, when it comes to to drug-impaired driving. Right. And, of course, there's always the big concern, too, that if there's a huge increase in the number of drug-impaired driving prosecutions, that's going to have a toll on our court system. So diverting them out of court is maybe effective. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, And, uh, I mean, and that is one of the challenges that the government has to deal with these days is the issue of how do you approach things. I mean, in uh, just as a side note, it's one of the reasons why we've adopted uh, the administrative approach in dealing with with uh, cannabis regulation when it comes to dispensaries uh, as well is to, as much as possible, take an administrative penalty approach as opposed to a criminal prosecution approach. Right. And so and in that regard, you're actually creating sort of your own um, BC's own cannabis police force. I think a lot of people call them the pot police or the <laughs> cannabis police. That's not the official name. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, the official name is the Community Safety Unit, uh, and that has been created with that specific purpose, um, and it's based within my ministry, Public Safety Solicitor General Ministry. Um, and the goal there, it, 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 it does two things. One, it ensures a you know a uniformity of enforcement across the province, mm-hmm. and it takes away some of the uh, the the burden off of off of local government. Uh, I know because when legalization was talked about, there was a lot of concern from municipalities about additional costs right. uh, that were going to be incurred. And when we made it clear, it's like, look, um, by doing this, you know, yes, you'll still have you do your regular bylaws as you would for any business. But the reality is in terms of, of illegal dispensaries that are operating with a license, we will have this unit whose job it will be to uh, to be able to enforce provincial laws and federal laws uh, when it comes to, to cannabis uh, that's that's not legal. Now, do those are is it anticipated that those community safety officers will have peace officer status? Um, they will be administrative, so they won't be wearing a, a uniform, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be about 44 of them. Um, wow. And they'll be based around, <laughs> but they'll be based around the province um, in, in a number of locations. So the Lower Mainland, um, Kelowna, uh, Prince George, uh, on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, and I expect, you know, once they're up and running, and once they're the, the enforcement. I mean, the reality is, is the bulk of those uh, illegal places right now are in are in Victoria. Oh, sorry, not Victoria, Vancouver, uh, with some in Victoria and then others in, in other communities. But the issue in Vancouver is probably the biggest uh, issue that they will be facing. Do you see any problems? I don't know if you paid attention to the court challenge that took place in Vancouver yep. about the municipal licensing of, of dispensaries. Yep. Do you see any challenge to uh, the ability of the community safety officers to enforce the provincial and the federal legislation if Vancouver continues to sort of be this rogue municipality that licenses things that are otherwise illegal? Um, well, what Vancouver has done, and I'm, I, it will actually help uh, the city of Vancouver, because uh, what Vancouver did was they uh, licensed a number of establishments, a uh, number of dispensaries, um, in accordance with their policy. They've since uh, adapted, uh, taken what the province and the federal government have done and, 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 and allowed, you know, and, and are taking new applications from often the existing dispensaries, and you're seeing that with the one that should be uh, open uh, a week uh, this Saturday. And then there were a whole bunch of others that basically thumbed their nose at the city of Vancouver uh, that started operating that were not licensed by Vancouver, and Vancouver has made it clear that they're not going to get a license, and that's what this court case primarily was about in terms of does the city have the ability to license and to shut those, and, and, and in essence to shut those ones down. And by winning in the, uh, the court, um, they're now able to say to us as well, look, this location, we haven't licensed it, we're not going to license, it doesn't have a license. Uh, that will you know, then become clearly, I think, a priority in terms of the community safety unit going in and saying, hey, you're not licensed by the city, you're not licensed by the province, um, you're, going to be, uh, you're going to be shut down. And so that those that are in the process that, you know, the city has said uh, we intend to license um, and, you know, go through the obvious background checks and everything the province has put in place, they will be the ones then that, uh, that, that should make it through. 
Now, a lot of people who are sort of cannabis activists have been really critical of the idea of having an administrative scheme in BC to deal with cannabis licensing and, and distribution, and then also having, you know, the federal framework for that mm -hmm. because it exposes people to the possibility of two charges. Is your intention with the community safety unit that then um, no criminal charges would be pursued, that no investigation criminally would be done and nothing would be forwarded to Crown for charges? approval? Our, our expectation is that by being able to use the administrative approach, which is why it was put in the first place, is a far more efficient way uh, than the court process, which could be lengthy and, uh, you know, uh, time consuming, mm -hmm. as well as costly. And the goal is to, to shut, uh, mm -hmm. you know, is to shut them down. It's, it's not to, uh, to, to drag unnecessarily through the courts. And so the administrative approach is in, is in many ways a far more efficient approach uh, to be able to, to deal, I think, with illegal dispensaries. And particularly, once you're starting to see more and more legal shops opening up, and they're facing competition from illegal, illegal operations, um, the administrative approach, I think, is, is a much quicker way uh, to be able to deal with things, because they have the ability to, um, uh, to seize product uh, and, to, uh, and to levy uh, an administrative penalty. Uh, and, you know, that's the goal, is to, is to shut them down. It's interesting that you mentioned the ability to seize product. I know we've already strayed very far from driving, but Sorry, one thing yeah. that I, when I read in, yeah. in the rules around um, the scheme that you set up in BC was this power that these officers are going to have to conduct warrantless searches. Mm -hmm. um, are you concerned about constitutional challenges to that? Um, it's, it's actually very similar to what's currently in place for, for alcohol. Oh. Um, um, the uh, liquor inspectors, for example, have the ability right now um, to to seize um, unlicensed uh, unlicensed alcohol, and so those those changes and those provisions that were put in place were in fact modeled on existing practices that are in place for uh, for alcohol in BC. Okay, so basically in BC we get what with the administrative scheme and assuming there's nothing happening in the criminal sphere here, yeah. we get what everybody wanted in legalization, which is a scheme that mimics m what we have for alcohol. Yes, yeah, that would be a, um, um, it, it, it's very, very similar. Okay, well, I, that, I, I'm actually encouraged to hear that because when you read it on paper, sometimes you're like, what do you mean you can just go in and take yeah. things? Yeah, I, I, and that's been the whole, that's been the whole, the whole idea behind this is, I mean, is, is, is as much as possible to deal with these issues administratively. I mean, the ability to pursue a, a criminal prosecution is, is obviously always there, just like it is with, with alcohol as well. But the mm -hmm. reality is, is the goal and the desire is to shut them down. And if you can do it administratively, then that's probably the best way to do it. Okay. I'm going to pivot completely back to yeah. driving yeah. Um, and ask a little bit more about the, the zero tolerance and, and THC concentration. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, do you have any um, contemplation about adding in the future, once we've sort of seen how this plays out, some exceptions for people who are medical users of cannabis so that they don't have to be affected in that way? Um, I mean, right now, um, drug-impaired driving is not legal. And, and I expect that over time, you know, you're going to see laws refined um, and and. In, and in, part, it, I guess it depends on the nature of the medical cannabis that you're using. I mean, if someone's using CBD, uh, a CBD product, um, that does not impair you. 
Uh, so that may be different than, you know, high THC. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now you can't use, um, you know, prescription drugs, for example, and, and get behind the wheel of a car if you're, if you're impaired. And so it would be that, in that sense, that's no different from, from cannabis use. Um, you can't use it and, and be impaired and get behind uh, the wheel of a vehicle, just like you can't show up to, to work uh, and, and be impaired. But what about the sort of lack of a connection between impairment uh, and a particular blood THC concentration? Um, these, I think, these are the kinds of issues that are gonna are gonna work them. They're gonna they're gonna work their way work their way through, and these are the kinds of things that we're gonna have to deal with, um, you know, in the coming years ahead. I mean. It, and in many ways, it's very, still very similar to if you're using prescription medications. I mean, things do impact people differently depending on, you know, your, your, often your age, your gender, your, 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 physical, um, your physical size. Um, and I guess it, it, you have to start, you know, you've got to start somewhere in the context of, look, right. um, you can't be impaired behind a vehicle. Now, as we get better you know, as, as technology improves in terms of measuring, as we get a better understanding of, you know, interactions and how things work, then you may see changes. But I think where we are right now is, is, pretty, is pretty standard. Uh, it's going to be pretty standard right across the country. This week, we have a very interesting guest. It is Eric McGracken, who is a lawyer dealing with personal injury, and he's the author of the famous BC Injury Law blog. And Eric is joining us on the podcast to talk about the new regulations that define what is a minor injury and the caps for ICBC claims. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining me on the Driving Law podcast. I'm really excited that you agreed to come on. You wrote a blog recently about the uh, definition of minor injury, and it's been shared very widely, as many of your blogs are. And I thought maybe you could give some explanation to our listeners about what your thoughts are on this. Sure. So, so I could probably just ramble on for quite a while with that kind of an open-ended question, but... But I'll start with this, Kyla. And, and first, thanks for having me on. I do appreciate you, you uh, giving me access to your podcast. The term minor injury, first and foremost, what everybody needs to know is it's a misleading term. It's, it's basically a political term that the government used to make the public okay with having your rights stripped. So what, what the B.C. government has done is they've targeted a whole host of injuries, limiting uh, the right to compensation for people that sustain those injuries by other people's negligent driving. And whenever I say the word minor injury, I want your listeners to imagine me putting quotations around it because minor does not mean minor in terms of what almost anybody else thinks about it. Minor is defined in the legislation to encompass a whole host of injuries, uh, most of which nobody would think of as a minor injury. Things like chronic depression, major depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, concussions, chronic pain, and a whole host of other at least partly disabling physical ailments are caught in this wide net that the government calls minor injuries. And so what British Columbians are in for 
after April 1st, 2019, that's when these minor injury laws kick into force, is a rude awakening. A whole bunch of people are going to be seriously injured in car crashes by drunk drivers, impaired drivers, distracted drivers, negligent drivers. And when they go to ICBC for compensation for their injuries, they're going to be told that they, in fact, have a minor injury and their rights are curtailed and they're going to get offers that are, uh, you know, frankly going to um, disturb a lot of people. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot to be left desired in British Columbia's scheme, and it's probably one of the most aggressive, if not the most aggressive, uh, campaigns in Canada in targeting victim rights. So is it, it, when you say that the officers are going to be laughable, do you mean that anybody with with a concussion is subject to this minor injury definition, even if they're like, you know, a an, an scientist working for the Canadian Space Program and now they can never go to Mars and they have to work a desk job or, I don't know, I'm trying to imagine some extreme example. but Yeah, so, so every concussion by default is going to be caught as a minor injury. And from there, there's ways, it, once you're labeled as a minor injury, there's ways to work around it, but um, it's, not, it's not quite that easy. And different classes of injuries have different ways to shake off the minor injury label. With concussions, there's a test of requiring at least four months of consecutive almost total disability and if the concussion is that bad then it could shake off the minor injury label but but you know you know whether you're a scientist or whether <clears throat> you work the front end of a desk or you know student retired whatever it is everybody is caught by this minor injury dragnet as a default and so so to take concussion for example say you're knocked out cold in a car crash you have a brain injury you're concussed for weeks you can't work or for weeks you can't return to school, but as the months drag on, you improve somewhat and you're able to get back to work. But from there you have lingering consequences, maybe photophobia, maybe noise makes you sensitive, maybe your concentration isn't what it used to be, maybe your energy isn't what it used to be, maybe you have chronic headaches, it doesn't matter. It's still a minor injury, even if you have long-lasting, even permanent consequences, so long as the disability doesn't last beyond a certain period of time. So like I say, there, there's going to be a rude awakening because a lot of uh, permanent injuries are in fact classified as minor injuries under this new uh, regime that the BC government's put upon us. Wow. So what, are you planning on doing anything about this? Are you, is there a way to sort of constitutionally challenge the government's ability to regulate this? Or is this just what we have to live with? So we saw this coming for, for a long time. Um, you, know, you know, it was probably half a year or a year ago that the government came out with a pretty um, aggressive marketing campaign indicating they're going to bring changes to the ICBC landscape. Uh, but despite having the broad strokes out there for a while, things haven't come together until last week. It was last week that the regulations came out. Uh, both under the Insurance Vehicle Act and the legislation creating the civil tribunal. It's sort of a one-two punch as well. Not only did the government uh, strip people's rights for non-pecuniary damages when you have a so-called minor injury, but they've also limited people's access to the judiciary. So if ICBC says you have a minor injury, even if you have a major injury, and I don't mean the definition of minor being somewhat absurd, I mean if under the legislation you have a real injury, uh, a substantial injury, something that's not minor, but the government or ICBC 
in the tort claim says it's a minor injury. Just the mere allegation takes away your right to be in court, and then you're forced to go through a civil tribunal, and there's a couple of hurdles you have to clear in order to get a permission slip uh, to go to the B.C. Supreme Court. That seems absurd, the idea it's, that one party can control where the litigation takes place by, by merely taking a position that might not even be, be justifiable. Yeah, and, and that exists in some regards um, in other areas of law, but it's okay. So, for example, if you're injured in a car crash and you sue for damages and the defendant alleges that the Workers' Compensation Act should kick in, that it's a driver or that it's a worker versus worker situation and WCB should have exclusive jurisdiction, they could make a unilateral allegation, even if they're dead wrong, and they could steer it out of the courts for WCAT to decide that issue. And, you know, it, it's frustrating and it's created some, some um, off results for the litigation for some people, but that's allowed. But where the government's probably crossed the line here is they're using charter-protected grounds um, to discriminate against people to then derail the judicial process. So I think, you know, you asked what I plan on doing about this. It's still a bit of a work in progress in that the regulations just came out um, last Friday. It's basically been about a week or so that these, these regulations have been out. But as I've had a chance to review them and digest them, I'm thinking more and more that we've got a Section 15 charter violation with how the B.C. government's put this together. And the way I want to explain it is as follows. If you have a prescribed class of injury, and that prescribed class is whatever the government calls minor, and they could expand that list at their whim by regulation, so they could add whatever they want to a minor injury in the future. If you have one of those prescribed classes of injuries, simply, or even if you don't, ICBC simply by alleging that you do, takes you out of the court. You have to go before a civil tribunal. At that civil tribunal, you have to persuade them that it's not a minor injury. But if you fail and they say it's a minor injury, you're then stuck in that civil tribunal unless you could persuade them that you have a substantial possibility of warranting damages in the realm of the B.C. Supreme Court. And the gatekeeping function of who's subject to those barriers before going to court are based entirely on charter-protected grounds. It's whether you have a certain physical or mental injury or disability. That's, that's the gatekeeping test. And the charter says you simply cannot give people a different route to justice or different legal rights based on protected grounds. And in those protected grounds are physical and mental disabilities. So I think we've got a bit of a charter mess here that the courts are going to have to sort out after these laws kick in. Uh, in April of next year. But the, the more I think about it, Kyla, what what this regime does, what this, and, and I say regime not to be inflammatory, but it's this mm-hmm. whole host of laws that work together. Um, what these laws do is they treat people with prescribed injuries about as well as the courts treat vexatious litigants. So <laughs> anybody, anybody could go to court and file a notice of civil claim and try to have their matter adjudicated. Unless you're a vexatious litigant, if you filed frivolous claim after frivolous claim after frivolous claim, the courts give you a timeout and say, listen, you can't come to court again unless you persuade us you have something of merit and then we're going to give you a permission slip. Well, what this does is this treats everybody who's a car crash victim with a physical or mental prescribed injury 
as well as a vexatious litigant. It says before these people can come to court, they have to get a permission slip from a different tribunal saying their claim has merit. So I think, you know, I think this is a, you know, um, um, a host of laws that has gone too far, and the charter, undoubtedly the court is going to be asked by a litigant in the near future whether this whole regime passes charter scrutiny. My sense, the more I'm looking at it, is that it does not. There you have it. Thanks for listening to another exciting episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. Next week, we will have another exciting episode. It's already starting to get lined up. It should be very good. My name is Paul Doroshenko with Acumen Law. If you need to get a hold of either myself or Kyla Lee, you can find us at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. And the office phone number is 604-685-8889. To get Kyla on Twitter, it's IRP Lawyer. And me on Twitter, it's Paul Doroshenko. Thanks for listening.